Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. My apologies for the unexpected break last week. I managed to get a rather nasty cold and just couldn't record. But we continue on from where we left off. Last time, we saw in detail what life was like for a Merovingian king, as Guntram visited Orléans and had to deal with the manipulations and machinations of the clergy. This week, we'll follow the rest of his trip and his efforts to reimpose order and deal with the fallout of Gundeveld's rebellion and the political realignment of the kingdoms, in episode 53, Settling Scores. So let's jump straight in. Last time we discussed the rather awkward dinner between Guntram and the members of the clergy, including the rebellious bishops Bertram and Palladius. Well, the conflict between these bishops and the king is not quite over. See, Guntram had made his feelings rather clear during that dinner. He'd criticised both men, though especially Palladius, and made some veiled threats about how traitors usually end up dead. Feeling that he'd made himself clear, Guntram probably expected the assembled clergy to take the hint and keep Bertram and Palladius out of his sight for a while. Grateful that he hadn't taken more drastic action. But there seems to have been a bit of a miscommunication here, as some of the clergy thought Guntram's restraint meant that he had forgiven the two bishops, which he most assuredly had not. This is the danger of a soft and subtle hand. Guntram sat down at Mass on Sunday in Orléans, only to discover that Palladius had been given the honour of giving the benediction. Once the king realised his erstwhile enemy was the one preaching to him, he stood in a rage and shouted, quote, Shall this man, who has always been disloyal to me and dishonest, now preach the sacred word before me? I will leave this church immediately, rather than hear my enemy preach. You can understand Guntram's anger. From his perspective, he had acted with restraint, not punishing the two bishops himself, and instead allowing the clergy to quietly handle its own problems. In return for this restraint, he had been insulted by having the very man who had lied to him several times rewarded with a prestigious honour and then preach to him. This was tantamount to calling out Guntram's mercy in front of the assembled elite, saying that you could support rebels against him, and there would be no consequences whatsoever. In their thoughtless act, the bishops had forced him into taking public action, humiliating Palladius by interrupting the service and publicly accusing him of lying. To do so caused a spectacle, but was really the only option that he had that perfectly preserved his own prestige. This is a surprising failure from the usually capable Gallo-Roman clergy. Their great strength was always their diplomatic skills, and their mistake here not only angered the king, but humiliated one of their own. They begged ignorance, saying that they had seen Palladius at the king's table, and hadn't realised that the king still held enmity towards the bishop. They asked the king to stay, and let Palladius, who had retreated in shame, return and finish the service. 
Guntram acquiesced, allowing Palladius to finish. Mistakes have consequences, though, and now that he had been provoked publicly, there was no going back to his softer reconciliation. The clergy had lost the opportunity to let Bertram and Palladius quietly return to their roles and have Guntram look the other way. Both bishops were once again summoned to dine with Guntram. But, perhaps sensing the renewed danger they were in, the bishops instead turned on one another. Each accused the other of adultery and fornication, common smears used against bishops at the time. The quarrel amused some of the onlookers in the church, but many, like Gregory who was still present, were upset at the bishops humiliating themselves in public. The situation escalated until the bishops finally agreed to appear before an upcoming church council to settle the matter. Because of the bungling of the clergy, both men now faced formal public inquiries into their actions. A good reminder that even the careful, powerful, well-educated clergy could make basic mistakes. While the results of his new soft power approach in Orléans had been somewhat mixed, Guntram was going to continue with his new, less forceful, more subtle approach to politics. Next up was Paris and the Neustrian court. Ever since he had moved out of the city to go deal with Gundervold, the Neustrians had been in a sort of weird limbo. It was clear Guntram didn't feel comfortable in the city. He didn't feel the nobles there were loyal, and despite his best efforts to distance Fredegund from court, she still clearly held immense influence. On paper, the court deferred to him as the senior king, and acted on his behalf to protect the young child king Clothar II. In practice, his influence was muted. None could openly stand against him, but they also felt no real loyalty to him either. This situation was difficult. His time in the city after the death of Chilperic seems to have taught Guntram that he couldn't force the kingdom into subservience. But he still needed to have some semblance of authority over the realm. His recent realignment with Austrasia and his definitive adoption of Childebert II as his heir wouldn't have made him any more friends in Paris either. He needed a way to make clear that he was still the ultimate authority, but not risk any further blows to his prestige. He had failed to govern, but he still needed their clear respect. So, how would Guntram act to make his authority clear? Well, in a surprisingly clever way. His big advantage was the fact that he was the senior Merovingian. So he decided to make that work for him by questioning Clothar II's legitimacy. Guntram made a speech in public upon his arrival in Paris. I'll read it in full as Gregory records it because it is quite interesting. Quote, When my brother Chilperic died, he is reported to have left behind a son. At his mother's behest, those in charge of bringing up the boy asked me to receive him from the sacred font on Christmas Day. They did not come. They made a second proposal that he should be baptised on Easter Sunday. On that occasion too, he was not produced. 
Then they made a third suggestion, that he should be presented on St. John's Day. Once again, he was not there. Now they have obliged me to leave my home in this sultry season. I have come, but the boy is still kept hidden from me, and I do not see him. As far as I can tell, there is nothing in this promise which they have made to me. I am beginning to think that he is the son of one of my ludes. If he had really been a member of my own family, he would surely have been presented to me. You must know that I shall not acknowledge him unless I am given incontrovertible evidence in his favour. As you can no doubt tell from the speech, Guntram is done screwing around. It seems Fredegund and those tasked with raising the boy had been playing a bit of a game with Guntram. Knowing the old king needed an heir, they had been summoning him only to not deliver the child. This showed that they did not take his blessing seriously, undermining his authority and prestige in the region. This had worked when Guntram had been feuding with Childebird, as he had needed Clothar to put pressure on his recalcitrant nephew. Now that he and Childebert were closer than ever though, he was finally ready to make clear a simple fact. He was the Merovingian, for all intents and purposes. If he questioned the boy's legitimacy, then there was nothing protecting the nobles in Fredegund. They needed him more than he needed them. Publicly questioning the legitimacy of the boy, and by implication the piety of Fredegund, was a masterful stroke. Guntram had realised he couldn't control these people, so instead he forced them to eat humble pie and come to him by applying pressure over the most important lever that he still held. And eat humble pie they did. Fredegund knew how dangerous Guntram's veiled accusations were. If anyone were to seriously question her son's legitimacy, her power would vanish like the fine morning mist. While Guntram sat back, with what I can only assume was a fair dose of self-satisfaction, Fredegund scrambled. She hurriedly threw together a procession, led by three bishops and with some 300 leading Neustrian citizens. They approached Guntram and swore an oath before him that King Chilperic was Clothar's legitimate father. This not only reversed the public perception, showing that the notables of Neustria were at Guntram's beck and call and not the other way around, it also would have been potent propaganda. The sight of so many important men basically begging Guntram to take his comments back was quite powerful. But Guntram was not done teaching the former allies of Chilperic a lesson for their previous opposition. Especially, as always, Fredegund. He began making noises about the tragic deaths of his nephews Merovic and Clovis. If you remember back, both sons of Chilperic fell victim to Fredegund, with Clovis in particular suffering a humiliating death at the hands of the vindictive queen. While he was in the area, a local man approached Guntram, claiming to know where Clovis's body was. Guntram promised to protect the man, and eagerly followed him. The man told Guntram about how he had found Clovis's body in his fishing trap in the river, and had taken it and buried it himself in an unmarked grave, 
worried about Fredegund's retribution. Upon digging up the body, Guntram recognised the telltale long, flowing Merovingian hair. He summoned the bishop and had Clovis's corpse reinterred at the Church of Saint Vincent, later known as Saint Germain de Prix. He apparently cried at the ceremony, as if Clovis had been his own son. He also later had Merovec's body moved so that it could lie beside his brother. This was of course more propaganda, and once more directed against Fredegund. Guntram may not be willing to wade into Neustrian politics of full force again, but he was staying above it all and sowing seeds of discord and doubt that he could effectively use to keep his enemies off balance, and force them to acknowledge at least his nominal authority. With Childebert on his side, that would be enough for the moment. The Neustrians were arguably the least important part of the realm anyway at this time. Fredegund was annoying, but not a direct threat to his position without an adult king behind her, as long as he could avoid her assassins. And speaking of assassins, the king's fear had begun to infect his followers as well. Guntram tells us that one of the church doorkeepers accused the other of taking a bribe to assassinate the king. The man was arrested and tortured, but nothing came of it and no plot was discovered. Gregory seems to think that it was just a personal grudge, and that Guntram's preoccupation with assassination meant that his staff were using the accusation to settle personal rivalries, knowing that the paranoid king would take their accusation seriously. But he does also note that one of Guntram's followers, a man named Ansevold, suspiciously left the king's retinue without taking his leave around this time. Now, let's focus on the big remaining problem that Guntram needed to resolve, Bishop Theodore of Marseille. Theodore was an incredibly powerful bishop, so powerful he hadn't felt the need to beg Guntram's forgiveness in the way that Palladius and Bertram had. In fact, as part of their rapprochement, Guntram had given Marseille back to Childbert. If you remember all the way back to episode 32, Theodore had been a thorn in the side of Guntram and his interests for years, and had staunch support from Childebert and the Austrasians. It was probably because of these connections that Theodore had welcomed Gundervold when he arrived in Gaul. And if you remember back again to episode 37, Theodore's support had been crucial to Gundervold in making the connections that he had needed to get his rebellion off of the ground. So Guntram really wanted Theodore gone, but Theodore was not as exposed as the other bishops who had sided with Gundervold. Let's break it down. As part of their reconciliation, Childebert was now theoretically in full control of the city of Marseille. But as Theodore's case will show, the rosy picture of cooperation between the nephew and the uncle had a few holes in it. Childebert, who had always been a supporter of Theodore, sent a noble named Rathar to become the new Duke of Marseille. As an olive branch to his uncle, he tasked Rathar with, quote, investigating, unquote, the accusations against Theodore. In reality, this was basically a polite way of saying that he was going to do nothing, 
because an investigation was completely unnecessary since everyone knew that Theodore was guilty of colluding with Gundervold. But upon arrival in the great port city, Rathar decided to take more definitive action. Ignoring Childebert's orders, soon after he arrived in the city, Rathar had Theodore's house surrounded with his troops. He forced the bishop to surrender to him, arrested him, and then sent him off to Guntram. It may seem like an odd choice for Rathar to immediately defy the king whose city he had just been appointed to rule, but we must remember a couple key details. First, the conflict with Marseille had always been that legally, Childebert was entitled to at least part of the city. But practically, Guntram's entire kingdom lay between him and Marseille, meaning that Guntram's influence in the city had always been significant. And second, at this point, Guntram and Childebert had gone back and forth on alliances and the ownership of Marseille a few times. So if you're Rathar in your new position as duke, it is not a bad idea to curry some favour with the senior Merovingian king. Of course, less diplomatically, the moment Theodore left the city and the church was left leaderless, Rathar pillaged the church properties and took most of its possessions for himself. This was clearly just an opportunistic action, but it might have had a strategic purpose as well namely to weaken the church in the city in case Theodore came back and wanted to revenge himself on Rathar. He had certainly caused problems for nobles in the city before. Anyway, Theodore was delivered into the custody of Guntram, who treated him fairly well and did not harm him in any way. Rathar had assumed that Theodore would face trial at the upcoming Council of Bishops from Childebert and Guntram's lands, but the bishops had failed to agree on where to meet. Specifically, Childebert's bishops had refused, claiming that the agreed meeting place of Troyes was not suited to their needs. At the time, Childebert was in the city of Koblenz, along with Gregory. Gregory records the message delivered to Childebert by Guntram's emissary. Quote, Your uncle, noble king, wishes to know Who has caused you to break your promise, with the result that the bishops of your realm have refused to come to the assembly which you and he called? Is it possible that ill wishes have sown some seed of discord between the two of you? Compared to the friendly and easygoing speeches we have heard since their reconciliation, this is a pretty hard left turn into suspicion. It really shows that diplomacy between the kings was hard, given the constant mutual suspicion and the tendency towards forceful diplomacy in order to protect their own image and prestige. To this letter, Childebert initially gave no answer. In the silence that followed, Gregory spoke up. Quote, It is not to be wondered at if tears are shown between two peoples, but none exists which can take root between the two kings. Everyone knows that King Childebert has no father except his uncle, and that King Guntram has no son except his nephew. This very year we have heard Guntram say it. Heaven forbid, then, that any seed of discord should take root between them, 
seeing that they have such good reason to support and love each other. End quote. This speech is Gregory acting in one of the key roles of the clergy, that of the mediator. Guntram's message invited conflict with its suspicious nature and accusatory tone, and Gregory was clearly worried that Childebert would respond forcefully to preserve his reputation and show that he wouldn't be pushed around by his uncle. So Gregory stepped in to clearly and pointedly remind the listeners, and the king, that the two men were bound by family ties, and any offence or mistrust that the letter had insinuated must be unintentional. Childebert then asked the room to clear so that he could speak to the messenger in private. He told the man to ask Guntram not to harm Theodore, because if he did, it would immediately cause conflict between the two kings. Then the messenger returned with his answer. Skipping past some of the travels that Gregory did in the downtime between this and the council, where he saw a couple of miracles and argued with a wannabe stylite, which is an aesthetic who lives on top of a pillar. He then details some political developments that we'll talk about next time, before arriving at Macon. It was here that the much-anticipated Council of Bishops was to be. At Macon, the bishops of the realm proved once again that they were far more lenient and reasonable when it came to dealing with their own members who meddled in politics. Like with Praetic's and Gregory in the past, the king was always angered by interference from the clergy, but the bishops themselves seem to have been disappointed with their decisions, but perfectly fine with the general concept of bishops getting involved in politics. Besides that, an important fact to note is that Guntram was not present himself. He had fallen seriously ill, and Gregory claims that this was God's intervention to ensure that he could not attend the council, where he would undoubtedly have pushed for the exile of the bishops who had sided with Gundabold, which may have caused a rift between him and the clergy. In his absence, the council moved to solve the conflicts that had arisen without drastic action. Bertram, Palladius, and Theodore, after all of Guntram's troubles and difficulties with them, were acquitted and were returned to their posts. Gregory records that Theodore's return to Marseille was apparently greeted warmly by his people. Other than this, the council shows a masterclass in conflict resolution, rarely seen in this period. The bishop Faustanius of Dax, who had been appointed by Gundervold, agreed to hand over his position to Nicetus, who had been appointed by the council. In return for this, the three bishops who had given him benediction, Bertram, Orestes, and Palladius, agreed to pay for his food and to give him an annual payment of a hundred gold pieces from their own coffers. The council also resolved the conflict between the servants of Bishop Priscus and Duke Ludigasil, and the bishop paid a large sum of money to put an end to the conflict. Ursicinus, another bishop who had admitted to welcoming Gundervold, was given three years of penance, but was otherwise allowed to continue in his position. The council also dealt with purely religious matters. A bishop brought a very interesting case before them. He claimed that a woman could not be included under the blanket term man. 
This would have had massive consequences as it would have changed the interpretation of many parts of the Bible. In the end though, the bishops once again showed their moderation. They discussed the issue, but Gregory and others pointed to several clear examples, including the line, quote, Male and female he created them, and called their name Adam, end quote, from Genesis. Eventually, the bishop was cowed and accepted the decision of the council. This is a perfect example of how the bishops from the period regulated the church and their actions themselves, rather than relying on any outside force, for instance, the Pope. There was also the interesting incident where Praetix Tartus read some prayers that he had composed while in exile, and the council was split on them, with some liking them, and others criticising them for their lack of attention to the proper literary form. This shows the same conflict that we've discussed before, as the bishops saw themselves as the intellectual inheritors of Rome, as well as the spiritual. Their argument over Praetextatus' work shows the same tension over changing language forms that we discussed when Gregory apologised at the beginning of his histories for his poor rural Latin. In the end, the Council of Macon is interesting not only because we get a personal insight into the inner workings of a church council, thanks to Gregory, but also because we can vividly see how different the approach to conflict resolution was between the nobility and royalty and the church. When it came to settling scores, the bishops took a much more holistic view, seeking compromise to prevent resentment and thus future conflict. This lesson is important to remember as we move forward into the late Merovingian period and seek to understand how the actions of the kings and the nobles changed. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to dive into some of the political developments I have skipped over this week, including Childebert's abortive attempt to invade Italy, Brunhild pleading for her daughter's life, and the beginning of her ruthless removal of rivals at Childebert's court. See you then. <laughs>